0: Hello hummingbirds, as I call all of you caring for animals and making a difference every day. Welcome to the Animal Care and Welfare Podcast i Buzz, where we combine the science and practice of animal welfare in a fun and engaging way, where we answer questions, find solutions, discuss tools, and achieve results, all for happy animals and people. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this podcast is brought to you by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Membership Experience. Let's buzz! Welcome to another iBuzz Animal Concepts podcast. I am absolutely delighted to introduce to you today Al Kordowski, who is in the best spot. He's semi-retired, but not really. He's flying his hawks and working with all kinds of animals. And of course, continuing to share his stories, his experiences, his knowledge of the animal welfare and behavior field that he has been a part of for decades. So Al Kardowski is a falconer, also an animal behavior practitioner. He has worked in guide dogs. It's just amazing. And I'm absolutely delighted, Al, that you are here with us today.
1: Thank you, Sabrina. Uh, First of all, hey, thank you for inviting me and allowing me to um, share my experiences with a broad audience.
0: Absolutely, it's really delight. I mean, it has been absolute years that we have spoken in person, uh, but I really look forward to this podcast and hearing you know so many different stories and so um, of course, maybe you could start introducing yourself a little bit because you have a very long history, and of course one podcast will probably just have to invite you back. Um, because you have so many different things to share, but maybe you can uh, tell the listeners a little bit about you and, and, and what you are doing.
1: Uh, uh, okay, that'd be great. Um, first of all, I grew up in Southern California, and uh, I was the kid that was always collecting uh, snakes and lizards. Um, I, uh, when I got out of high school, I decided I didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, I went to, luckily enough, a small little college called Park. And uh, Park College, um, at that, just about that time, I think after my first year or so, uh, was about ready to start a program called Exotic Animal Training and Management. Uh, and they were taking interviews for 18 spots for the, the inaugural class. And I was interviewed and I was uh, added to the class, which was uh, probably the greatest foundation that uh, one could ever get, um, and from there I, I, I got to be in 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 kind of odds at points with uh, the professor Bill Brisby. Um, he was quite the womanizer at the time, and and guys were were he was really into wanting to have co- uh, women get into the field. So having guys in the in the industry was not uncommon for him, but for women it was. So we'd be back and forth on that, but. One day, he came up to me, uh, this is, uh, after, I think, the beginning of, my, or no, the end of my second year, uh, he came up and said that uh, he's got a potential position for me that he would like to send me down an interview for, and I'm thinking to him, it's like, this is exciting because I want to work with uh, elephants, and I want to work with gorillas and chimps, and, and he, he pulls me in, and he says, uh, there's this place down in San Diego, it's uh, been around for just a little while. It's called SeaWorld, and uh, they are looking for somebody to hire to to go out um, to a new park in Orlando to work with killer whales. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've been at the beach all my life and and uh, and, and surfed and did all kind of stuff, and I like the water, but I was really intrigued by elephants, uh, and I'd worked with a little bit of elephants uh, while I was in college. Uh, so I went down to, to uh, SeaWorld and uh, met Dave Butcher, who was going to be the uh, director of training there. And uh, we, we were out, and he goes, oh, hey, I want you to watch a show. And at the, it was the very early days of Kilauea uh, waterworking shows, and I watched it, and I was amazed. And all I could think about was if he asks me, uh, I'm going. Well, he asked me, and, uh, and uh, out to Orlando I went and i I was with uh that was just a just so terrific because it was such a new time uh sea world was just this wonderful learning bed but i didn't know that at at the beginning but uh, i spent 31 years with sea world and uh, I, i hope to today to be able to tell you know some of the experiences and stories uh, that I have that became the foundations for what I do today and also what is actually happening and is normal in the industry. Um, and then uh, uh, in 19, or 2007, uh, I was thinking about retiring, um, and I had a good friend uh, who had just opened a, uh, a dolphin interaction program in the Bahamas, and uh, he was working for Kirsner International and they were in the process of of building a uh, interactive program in Dubai on the the Palm. And the exciting thing was, is I was like, perfect timing. I'm kind of at a point where SeaWorld isn't really offering all the excitement and thrills and I'm going. So uh, uh, I was hired to um, implement, oversee the entire project uh, travel internationally and find, uh, trainers from all over the world to come to this location. And also, uh, we had real interesting experience with acquiring our, our dolphins for the program. And, and, uh, that was just a, a spectacular, uh, experience and, and, uh, a real growth experience. Um, uh, after the implementation and after the first year, uh, it was time for me to go and I went to, uh, when I got back to the States, I worked for a zoo as a, a zoological director for a few years, um, but it wasn't the excitement of actually training. And I had a, a friend that called me who had uh, been operating a service dog uh, facility uh, for hearing impaired and for mobility challenge in in Texas. And I have always gone to Texas to fly my hawks, so I was like, this could be great. Well. Uh, out I went, and, uh, and, and again, uh, just a tremendous experience to be able to apply what I've learned all these years into a new skill set, and it's always fun to learn something new. And So I spent a number of years there, and then uh, one thing that uh, I've always done, at least I've done for the past 35 years, is I'm a falconer. My wife and I are master falconers, and uh, it's, the falconry's been my laboratory. Uh, and it continues to be my laboratory for learning more uh, uh, about relationships and, and, uh, and uh, complex behavior. And, um, and that's where I am today. And, and really, it's about uh, telling my story.
0: That's absolutely wonderful. It's just so yeah, many decades of and across so many different species and taxa that you have worked. And, and just to briefly go back to Moore Park College, is that college for people who don't know about this college? Is that college still uh, a, a place where people can learn how to become animal trainers?
1: It is absolutely still there. When I first started, it was we started with a, a timber wolf, Kiska. That was it, uh, and, a, and then we brought in a trailer, and then we would do our first overnights and you know our night watches. And... And then uh, after I left, uh, many years after I left, they, they rebuilt and, and built this incredible zoo. And they, to this day, are still bringing in students. Obviously, it, it went from 18 to 45 students a year. Uh, it, it, grew, it grew quite a bit. But yes, it's still there. Um, it's where I kind of point people uh, when they're not sure what they want to do, because it's not just about training that they teach there. They teach about the welfare. They teach about... Facility design, veterinary medicine, uh, nutrition, um, uh, performing. Uh, it's kind of a, a catch-all for all the things that you may encounter in the zoological industry. Uh, and it gives you an opportunity to try to find where your niche is or to explore that niche and give you some experience. So once you step out into the field, you have a better idea of, of what the industry is like. Uh, also, it, it, it networks you. As an example, I, I got a job at SeaWorld because I was networked. You know, it, it also allows you those opportunities because they have uh, different intern programs that during the different parts of the year that some of the students can participate in. It's just a it's an exciting program still going strong. Uh, you know, when I go to the uh, ABMA conferences, we usually take an alumni picture which is always exciting because some of the people I didn't realize were at Moore Park. I all of a sudden go, oh my gosh, you were a, you were a student there too, a different year. So uh, a great program in, in Southern California.
0: Oh, that's really wonderful because of course, you know, people new to the field but also people who might want to get a deeper understanding and, a, and another type of education it's so great to hear, uh, and so it's always good to hear stories, especially from from uh, alumni on how they experienced it. And we'll definitely also put a link uh, at the with this podcast, so people who are listening, who are thinking of getting into this uh, field, can can check out Mark Park uh, Zoo and College. So it has a zoo license today. That's really exciting. Then. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah. So. Um, as you said, you know, at the college, you learned about training and then you, and and you actually worked a little bit with elephants and, and you really wanted to go work with, with great apes, but then you ended up working with the ocean's biggest predator, the kill whale, and, and I'm sure lots of other animals that we're going to hear about. Then. And also, you know, you started so many decades ago uh, in the field. So can you you know you're so well positioned to talk uh, about the evolution that you have seen in training like the methods of training uh, perhaps different methods of course for different species um and how you know what what can history tell us
1: oh well uh, good that's a that's an excellent question uh because when i first started it was at sort of the beginning uh, not to say that there wasn't training occurring obviously you know the the Breelands were doing a lot uh Bob Bailey had a lot to do with it but really the beginning was focused on emulating circus behavior uh or the movies um in the in the world of dogs it was really the guide dogs specifically guide dogs uh the horse training uh and training methods and all of those really uh, were a reflection of intimidation or food deprivation or aversives or punishment. So uh, my first introduction really fell into those areas because it was kind of at a point where there was nothing else known. It's kind of like right now if you were to try to uh, you know reproduce any of Skinner's projects with mice or rats No one would allow that to occur today, but all that information came from that. So I think because of all those things, it really helped me and it helped the industry because there was, the the great thing was, is that there was a future in what we were doing because we knew there was a better way. We just didn't know exactly how to get there. Uh, When we shaped behavior uh, or maintained behavior, everything was on an F1 schedule uh you know there was uh, no reward markers that were used um if we had to do medical behaviors we had to think about the size of the animal and what we were going to do as an example if it was an elephant seal we'd have to drop the pool and go down into the pool with it if it was a killer whale we had to drop a pool if it was a walrus we'd have to put a net over it if it was a, a sea lion we had to chase him into a into a squeeze cage um you know, so all those things were was my introduction to training in a sense that, you, you know, as a trainer, which was kind of an interesting thing is we took care of the animals, but animal care was not a title. We were the ones that got dressed up in, in fancy clothes and went out and did performances in front of everybody and we shaped behavior. And we, so I got paid for playing with the animals. Uh, but the the other side of the spectrum was when we didn't get what we wanted, we didn't really explore a lot of the different ways that we could do it. But the cool thing is, is that we did. We we, we did because we were getting beat up by killer whales and chased by by um, elephant seals and and otters and and, you know, uh, going down into a bottom of a pool with a killer whale to do some sort of care was super dangerous, very dangerous. I mean, I, I, I remember um, the way we used to catch dolphins. I remember one, one time uh, Nova, was, she was uh, an animal care dolphin that was placed at, at, at Whale and Dolphin Stadium where it was at the time. And we were planning how we were going to go ahead and catch her so that we could do some blood work and, and everything else that we, the veterinarians needed. And uh, we had this plan so we and, and my and, you know, my job was to jump in the water and grab the peduncle, which is all that that muscle area between the dorsal fin and the tail. Somebody else from animal care was going to grab the 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 pectoral flippers and then everybody else was going to pile in. So everybody has their place. We're ready to go. One, two, three. And I jump in. and I'm the only one that jumped in. I grabbed the peduncle. I got fluked. I ended up um, nobody else jumped in. And you have to control the, the pectoral flippers if you do a procedure like that, because that's how you control them, not the peduncle, the, the the pectoral flippers. So uh, needless to say, uh, from that particular situation, I came up after getting hit and I couldn't take a breath. Um, they took me to the hospital and I had uh, broken ribs. I had uh, a punctured lung and I had a bruised heart. Wow. So do you think maybe there was a better way of doing it? So, so I, you know, again, I, if I hadn't experienced, I wouldn't know how today being able to, you know, teach them uh, our animals husbandry behavior is so safe for myself, but also for the animal. So uh, the mental and the physical importance of what it was that we did were things that became kind of a foundation. We. We started to explore different uh, ways to improve what we did. We had a, a killer whale, Ramu, that, that was a great teacher because if you didn't feed him, he would try to come out of the water and try to eat you. Uh, you couldn't go in the water with him. Uh, and we had we were doing shows with him. Um, so we started to experiment. Dave Butcher and and uh, Bruce Stevens, that were director directors in, in San Diego and in um, uh, Orlando, started to work on a different type of a, an opportunity using Ramu kind of as the test guinea pig, which is, can I feed him one, do a behavior, not feed, and then do another behavior and then feed. And that way he would start to learn that just because he didn't get fed didn't mean he didn't have to get mad. Uh, and that started random and interrupted reinforcer. That's what we called it. Uh, and uh, and what ended up happening with that is that kind of led to searching for different kinds of Reinforcers and getting the the psychology books out and try to figure out what the scientists do Uh, What would the 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 psychologists do and and psychology was the big thing at the time? Uh, Behavioral analysis was not really the big focal point because there's always been an argument between the two of them So uh, it allowed us an opportunity to kind of grow with that and that grew into um, uh, understanding about applying reinforcers and and the other thing that was exciting about this is that the only, you know, we would play with the end, We'd jump in the water. I mean, there was no safety rules at the time, which we ended up having to to write and they are now part of everybody's foundation in any industry. But um, we were just playful and exploring everything. And uh, we were trying to explore what types of reinforcers they might like. Cause it, remember we were on an F1 schedule and now we're kind of, we're, we're skipping it. Um, of going to an F2, but, but, or an F3 and, and, but there's no other reinforcers mixed into that. And uh, from that evolve, uh, evolved the variable ratio with reinforcement variety, which allowed us an opportunity to vary up whatever we were doing, but everything got followed with some sort of reinforcer, but it was a reinforcer that we chose that we felt was going to be uh, accepted by the animal, but would also increase behavior. Um, the other thing that was cool at that time is we would give them. A ball, a, a buoy, uh, a float to play with and uh, we would see the you know how they would interact with themselves and then how they'd interact with other animals and then occasionally that interact with us and uh, that kind of worked itself into applied enrichment because at the time enrichment was really not a big focal point. Um, you know we talked about play and we talked about the animals getting things to do you know and stuff to do but that led to um, an understanding of testing hundreds of different uh, enrichment, whether it's a, a and, and not only that, but it was, we also learned um, if it was a supervised item, a non-supervised item, if it was an all access or a not access because it wasn't a good piece, for like giving a tennis ball to a, to a walrus is not a really good idea, they're gonna ingest it, but you could sure do it with, a, with an otter but you could give an otter and you could give uh, a walrus a buoy to play with. So we started to identify all the different items. We had hundreds of items listed and we would track who in the collection would have access to when and how. And then we also went ahead and said, how do we apply the enrichment? Well, it's not just I'm going to walk up to the pool, I'm going to throw something in. What happens if I throw that in and, and and one animal was aggressing towards another animal at the time, and then we're reinforcing that aggression with enrichment? So we really started to pay attention of when it was applied and then how we applied it. And then it was also teaching the animal how to come away from it or how to bring it to us so that we could go on with business. That all kind of started from just, you know, observations and playing. Um, and then, then husbandry behavior, for God's sakes. Uh, you know, you think about the fact that um, we really, at, at the time, everything was, as I was explaining earlier, was about restraint. Uh, but we also found that there needed to be a better way of doing that. And we started to realize that we could roll a, a, a cetacean over and play with their um, the ventral side of their tail flukes and manipulate it. And it didn't bother them, it was just another behavior. And then we approximated into what today is taking a blood, you know, taking a blood stick. And we did that with all the different species and crossed it over. And I remember uh, with sea lions, uh, we didn't really understand about rut and how to work rut into, and rut is is a time of the year that uh, male sea lions, we had all male sea lions at the time living together, that uh, they would gain weight on air. And this would all happen in the middle of the summer when we have our largest show schedules. So we started to, after a while, tracking it so we better understood how to address that. But at the time that we were doing that, you would have aggression between the two male sea lions because obviously, naturally, they're trying to establish rookeries. So you might have some of that going on. And you may have somebody that gets a bite. And, and when a sea lion bites another sea lion, it's, it's, not, it's pretty nasty. So you have to flush it out. So instead of having to put the animal into, the, into a squeeze cage, we started to use behavior that we would normally do with them, which would be in a show, we'd have them do a trance, which is basically they'd lay down. Well, we could then transfer that behavior that we were training for a show, and we can now go ahead and I could flush this out with, with the sea lion just laying there, and we didn't have to put them in a squeeze cage. So now we're starting to, as you're, you're hearing by this, we're taking behaviors that we would do for our shows and, and taking those behaviors and creating husbandry behaviors that are now there. You know, and all the things we do, we do urns and, and we do blowholes and we do stomach samples and we inseminate and you name it, we're doing it. But all this kind of evolved from behaviors that we created from shows. Um, so you, you take a look at that. The other thing that we started realizing is that training. Training is, is the important uh, part of a successful um, welfare program. We also know that building relationships uh, and training medical behaviors. All those things became really critical because all of those affected our relationships. So we had to get good at this. Um, the other thing that as, as things evolved is that um, being in the dog world for the past seven years, I realized that because of all the issues in the marine mammal and the zoo industry, all the activism about releasing animals and not doing shows and stuff like that, what's happened is everybody's been on the defense and nobody's really been on the, the offense on you know, really looking at what's the next piece of the future. But the dog world is. The dog world has become quite progressive. They're the ones that are now doing all the things that we did in the, in the marine mammal world. Um, but you know, look at all the scent detection that's going on. Th- right now with the, the COVID-19, you know, they're now looking at training dogs for scents. Um, we don't do the shows like we used to, but in the dog world, they're doing freestyle, which is really a lot of what we did with some of the complex behaviors that we put together with all the marine mammals. Therapy, service, sports, all those things are becoming kind of the, the area where you're, you're seeing more progressive training and scientific information. And what's happening right now is the, the, the dog world is kind of focusing a lot more on the behavioral analysis size and, and, and looking at the, at the natural sciences of, and understanding behavior. They're bringing that out. That's not happening necessarily in the zoo side, the, the, the marine mammal side, it's happening in the dog world. Uh, and so when you think about that, you know, you, you can see that there's a change that's happening in that area. And I'm hoping that what happens is a lot of the future comes from what's being learned in the dog world that can maybe be applied and placed into the marine or zoo industry. Because the methods that I've been talking about and the methods that we've done have basically opened the door. Uh, with you know, I'm doing with my, with my birds of prey. I've done it with dogs and horses and, and, and snakes and you name it. But just from taking a look at where I started out, you know, I mean, there's a lot in between all this. But from where I started off to where we are today, there's a lot of information out there. And we're doing a lot of really good stuff. But it all had to start somewhere. And it started with us not knowing where, but knowing that we could explore different ways to try to make it work.
0: Wow. There's just so much information there. We could take a deep dive into just, you know, and spend the rest of the podcast talking about, because you have mentioned so many really important aspects about, you know, how you were interacting with the animals and they were interacting with you, you know, the methods that you were using and how you, you know, talk about animals as your teachers, right. And how you could improve to do things differently and better. And what was interesting to me that kind of sprang out because you have talked about how important relationships are. And of course, in the beginning, the relationships that you had with animals were, you know, probably not so positive and not so encouraging for either side. And you mentioned that, you know, they were interacting with with the enrichment and the objects that you were giving and sometimes with, with you. And so would you say that you know, the frequency of interactions and the type of interactions because of the relationship at the time they were lower. So because you would do fewer sessions because they were so challenging. Well, now there seems to be, today there seems to be a lot of focus on doing a lot of different sessions for the animals. Or is that similar?
1: Well, um, the one thing that I didn't mention in all that Was the fact that we were doing shows. And we would do, I've done thousands and thousands and thousands of shows. So every day that we were there, all these things that I'm talking about are all kind of the side effect of shows. We would do, you know, eight, you know, maybe three to four shows during the winter, and we would do eight to 12 shows, and this is a day, during the summer. Wow. So all the stuff that I've gotten done talking about really kind of fit in between all that or we use the show as an opportunity for us to learn. Yes. So actually we we you know you, you might say that uh you know we're doing more today but I would challenge that by saying I believe we did more then because we had a schedule you know it was like we had a show at 9:30 and then went at 10:30 and went at 12:30. Okay so a show runs 20 minutes. So we, our time in the day meant when we came in in the morning, you clean and, and prepared all the diets. You did whatever type of training sessions you could get in. You did a show. Then you did another training session. Then you did a show. And, and uh, I'll talk a little bit later about some of the things that kind of even came out of that. Uh, but I actually feel that we did, oh, just an incredible amount of, of work. And we all – depending on what animals you're working at what you were doing. And, you know, we were always maintaining, but still advancing the more experienced animals. But we were at the same time bringing in new animals and exposing them and getting to the part where they could be a part of the interactions and growing. Um, So all this was kind of happening and evolving all at the same time. And we were doing research, we were, you know, we were putting together papers, we were training staff so, no, we, we spent an incredible amount of time uh, fulfilling all of that, because on top of all those things, we had to remember that observations are critical. You needed to be able to look at that. We also needed to always challenge ourselves to find out motivation, motivators, because of all the interactions we were doing, and a limited amount of food per day, how do you fit that all in? And that's why, why the, the different schedules of reinforcement became so valuable because now I could do a show instead of feeding every single behavior we were doing. And if we if we were doing 50 behaviors in a show, I I, I ran out of food. So we had to find out different ways. So what it did is it forced us to find different things that would motivate other than just food every single time they did something.
0: Absolutely. And, and I sense? agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Because... You know, sometimes when I visit marine parks or oh, also at zoos where we have interactions and we get people to time the amount of time they're actually with the animals doing the training or spending time, like you say, observing, um, some of the times we get, we actually really surprised how little that actually is. Uh, and so hearing about, you know, having to do so many shows a day, And also, then, how do you make it work? And looking at all these different things that are reinforcing to animals beyond food. I mean, it's it's very very um, interesting. And especially also when you're because for new trainers listening, you know, you talked about F1 and other schedules and reward markers. Maybe you can expand a little bit about uh, that before we move on, so they know a little bit more about what all these different things are. when we're talking about animal training.
1: Sure, I, I can get into that. I, I wanna go back real quick to, to one element of, of the busy schedule is because observations were so critical for us that if we were doing a show and then we stepped away and we were out of the visual view of our animals for any length of time, uh, because we had the animals living together, If there was a squabble, we would never know about it or what happened. Uh, On the same spectrum, we had to fit in time to build our relationships. So there's many, many, many days that we would have lunch at the side of the pools so that we could observe and the animals could observe us at the same time. And I do the same thing today with my hawks that I did way back then, is that even the way I have my hawk environment, my, my muse set up for my birds, my birds can see in the house, they can see everything that's going on in, in, you know, 360 degrees in the environment that we live in, because I think it's really important that they're not isolated. And I know I always felt that when we stepped away now, not to say that we didn't need to take a break and we didn't because we're all exhausted. But at the same time, we found ways to fit in opportunities within the busy schedules to build those relationships. And yes, uh, if if we can, what I'd like to do is that before I, I I catch into the the reward markers and so on, can I touch on relationship a little bit?
0: Absolutely, yeah. I'd love to hear a lot more about relationships and ways that you have, you know, like taking your lunches. I know many trainers and zoo uh, care professionals do that to try and have more time with the animals. So the yeah, please share with us your experiences and your views on relationships.
1: And the, the, thank you. Uh, and, and the reason why I wanted to is because uh, the very first thing, when, when we brought it, we brought in 27 animals from the Solomon Islands to start an interactive program in Dubai. And the two top pieces of, our, of the program that, that I, I distributed was we're going to build uh, trust and relationship. Um, that's number one. With everything that we do, that's number one. Because um, my feeling is, is that uh, relationships really equal trusting experiences. And that's something that is, is an approximated process, but continues through your time with those animals and the animal's time in the care of man. So. The reason why I bring that up is because the mindset that a trainer has when they walk out needs to be that of making sure that whenever they're within any visual view uh, of the animal, and the animal has the abilities of seeing them, they are now starting their interaction. And animals are real good about understanding more about us than we are about them because we tend to get lazy. But if you step up and the first thing you do is you have, as, as Bob Bailey think plan do, you know, as long as you have that in mind and you're thinking about a trusting experience, all the other pieces start to fall into, into play. But if you go out, you know, and you're introducing a brand new animal, you know, uh, to you, and you're not thinking about that or taking that mindset, you know, you've just, you know, to me, you've taken away one of the most valuable tools that you have. And that is ensuring that that interaction you're going to have to that animal is trusting that the animal wants to be a part of your world. So I, I, I wanted to touch on it because I, I, I see that that's, you know, the relationship building is to me, an opportunity to see into the animal's mind. because If I'm building a relationship, it doesn't mean I'm always touching and feeling and stuff. It means I can be in their environment and I can be observing what it is that they're doing. And if you watch closely enough, you can see in their eyes and in their mannerisms a lot of what's kind of going on and allows you an opportunity to take advantage of that um and and ensure that that experience or having at that moment if it's if it's the if it's a direction you want to go in it can help you make some really valuable decisions about whether or not you want to move on to doing a training session maybe the animal is not engaged so why would i walk up if i don't have an animal in that so i always look at it as i want the animal to be in my world before i start a session If I go up and I'm in their world, which I'm in it all the time, but they're not focused on me, there's a lot of opportunity for air. So if I'm sitting there and we did, we started doing this with the service dogs, something I brought in from the marine mammal side of things. And that is before a charter training session, what's the state of mind of that animal? How much time do I, is that animal engaged as soon as I bring the animal out and we start, or is the animal kind of focused elsewhere? Well, why would I start a training session with an animal that has lack of focus, but I can sit there with that animal in that environment. And when that animal starts to generate, you know, uh, uh, eye contact or starts to uh, be in, in engaged in, in what I'm presenting, whether it's hand tackle or whatever it is, it allows me an opportunity to take a choice of what I want to do and when I want to go on. You know, the, you know, what is it that during that time is reinforcing for them? uh one of the things that I really enjoyed doing with the marine mammals was tactile. And and to the point where I, I, I was so involved in it that I could go to the I could go to the beach and I could build a killer whale out of sand because I could remember all the the way that I went around the body of the animal and how that body was. But it allowed me also to find out different areas of the body that this one particular individual, because not all of them are the same, were engaged in, and then I could also take that information and I could apply that to another animal to see whether they liked it too. So my abilities to continue all came through the uh, the training or the uh, the relationship session. So I think that you have to have that that's an, such an important part in, and I always have to remember that you know thinking of building a relationship. As an approximated process that never ends is to me more important because we're always learning in this job and I've been doing this for almost 45 years and I learn something new every single day and if you go into it and don't look about it's an extended approximated process because you're always looking and you're always trying things out on new on new animals that you become much better at creating trusting experiences
0: absolutely and and you have repeated it in different words across but it's it has you know a, it talks about wanting the animal wants to interact they are engaged with you they have you know some choice to control over and you're using the information to of course build those relationships but also approximate the behaviors that you want and so there is this you know interaction between you and the animals uh, where both parties want to be involved and learn from each other because I'm pretty sure you know you've been uh, seeing the animals watching you uh, as much as you have been watching them
1: exactly exactly
0: yeah now I think Um, And it's so key, this whole aspect of relationships, because like you've said several times, you know, you are always, we are always in the animals world in one way or another, whether they can see us directly or, you know, the way that we have structured their days. And so, you know, being so cognizant about that and, and thinking about, you know, getting the best relationship with the animals and anything that comes with it is so key into good animal welfare programs. So I'm so glad you're sharing um, all this information to really focus on that. and, And also how much you have focused on other types of, you know, rewards or interactions or ways that was reinforcing for the animal. So, you know, to get the behaviors that you were looking for at the same time.
1: And and, and uh, Sabrina, this is something that works between all species. Um, you know, I've never I've never looked at it. Is that because I'm a snake, I can't build a relationship? Uh, obviously, a little different, but you can. Uh, the same thing for for any of the species that I've ever worked. But the caveat to that is that. Each is regarded as an individual, even if they're the same species and if they're different species. All I'm going to be able to do is take the information I've gotten from one and think that there might be an opportunity to apply it to another. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be motivating or reinforcing. So I always look at when I've worked with and I've I've been fortunate enough to work with one hundred and twenty five different species and actually train them. And I've never changed any of that. You know, obviously I need to know if it's a predator or if it's a, um, a prey animal. I need to know whether or not they, what it is they can or can't do. But I've always looked at them the same way. And and one of the things that I always found that was important about building a relationship is that there needs to be really good communication. Uh, you know. You need to be able to have some structure and some consistency. I think routines work out well. I think you have to have a safe environment. And I think you have to have, what I say, and the way I use it is uh, a common language. As an example, anywhere that I, I, I've i ever, I did this with, we did it obviously over the years uh, at SeaWorld. Uh, and, and in fact, I could go to any of the other parks and work any of the animals because all the SeaWorlds were consistent about the way we were communicating, you know, the way we uh, would we'll give a cue, um, uh, the, the processes and the metho- uh, methodology of applying um, reinforcers. And I did the same thing when I was uh, with the Dolphins in Dubai and the same thing I did with service dogs. And that is what we're doing doesn't mean it's right or wrong in anybody else's business. But for us, we need to have a common language so there's no confusion for the animal when anybody approaches or interacts with, so that the animal feels comfortable and not have to try to explain why somebody's speaking Spanish when all I understand is English. And we did the same thing with our clients that we were we were um, uh, giving to the to our clients is they would learn the exact same way. And even though you might you know they might have raised a dog using traditional methods our dogs don't work that way and in order for you to have one of our dogs you're going to have to be able to learn how to speak their language so I think that you also have to realize that and and one of the other things too is that I think people look at food as the the overall catch-all for everything that's going on now I'm, I believe me food's always available because if i I'm selecting reinforcers, and at the time, the animal's hungry, well, food's the, the best motivator. But if the animal's not food motivated and they're toy motivated, well, maybe a toy is what I'm going to give them. them. Um, so what I always try to do is, if, I, if I've got a brand new animal, I might start with food because food is the one thing that is a, uh, a primary reinforcer. Uh, it's, the animal's going to have to be fed every single day. And that gives me an opportunity to start those trusting experiences. And once I can, and as quickly as I can, fade the food out of the picture, it allows the animal to now start to give me opportunities to find other things that they like. So even though I might use food, but I see that so, so often that it's all about food, 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 food that it never allows the trainer because all they're ingrained in their head is thinking I've got a feed to do everything I'm doing that they forget about and they don't look at all the other potential opportunities for reinforcers, which then plays into creating those trusting experiences. So uh, I think that uh, in in regards to, you know, different species and and relationships, I think, you know, uh, we have to be careful about how we use food but food's an important part of all of our days
0: yes, no, absolutely, yeah, and I think it's such a you know and and often I think there are so many different discussions with regards to the use of food, of course and 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 as you well know more than than I do, I think with regards to flying birds there's lots of discussions and and sometimes the words you talked about having a, a common language um with regards to you know the the cues that we're giving and then the way that animals were trained um but also those defining those right to understand what language are we speaking within a within a company or if we are as trainers talking are we all you know does the same word mean different things to different people just like you know, weight management, of course, can mean many things because weight management in itself is actually a good thing, right? Because we don't want animals that are, that are too light, that are not healthy, or animals that are too heavy, right? But then weight management can also have a different types of context uh, and, and meaning in a different context. So, um, and, and this focus on food and how food is used. And that's not just in formal training sessions, but for example, where food is placed to get animals to move closer or eat closer to the public. Uh, A lot of times those aspects are not necessarily seen as the use of food, right? Uh, But I think they're just as important when we're analyzing in what ways are we using food to either build relationships with animals in positive ways or to draw out behaviors that we would like to see and what are the effects on it. And I think you have given lots of different examples on how food is one tool And to also critically um, look at what, in what ways are we using food when we are working um, or caring for animals in general. So thank you for that.
1: You know, let me, can I tell you a quick story?
0: Yes, please. (laughs) Let
1: me talk about, I want to talk about food real quick. Uh, You know, I put together for this podcast uh, uh, some different stories that I had that were kind of uh really influential in my life and uh and I and I have one that uh really happened it was it was kind of it was one of those uh mind-blowing experiences that I had and an experience that changed my life and it was back in I think it was the late 80s and uh it was over thanksgiving and up until that point at in, at thanksgiving and i can't remember what you remember the i know it was, i'm pretty sure it was in the in the late 80s we did a lot of work with our sea lions we we were doing incredible stuff with them we we had great shows with lots of behavior we were taking the animals out of the environment but we were carrying side buckets and our animals got really good at looking in our bucket to see if we had any food left in it and if we didn't they would make a choice on whether they wanted to stay with us or leave and a lot of times they would leave and what i mean by leaving is if i was working with them and they took a look in the bucket and it was later on the day they might decide to go swimming in the pool and and not continue with the show Uh, or they would leave the leave and actually leave the stage and and it was because we were walking food buckets on this thanksgiving weekend uh, a really good a brother from another mother uh dave for and, and we had we had done a lot of shows together and we were seeing this it's the middle of the summer uh, you know it's getting to our busy season for the holidays thanksgiving we're going to be doing a lot of shows and dave said this is the time for us to do this we are going to put our buckets in a bunch of different positions all over the stage and we are not going to carry side buckets. It was cold turkey. So we went ahead and we placed, we took the the food amounts that we were going to use for those particular animals. We divided them into a number of buckets, uh, side buckets, and then we hid them all over the set. We hid them in the back, uh, by the pools we were separating the animals out in. We, we hid them uh, on stage and out, out in, in public. And uh, at first the animals were, they looked at us like, well, you got no food. Why am I going to work with you? But we had uh, just enough of a relationship with them that they didn't kind of see, hey, we're not going to get fed. And when we had asked for a behavior, we would, either run or walk to a location to where a bucket was hidden, we'd pull out food and we would give it to them. And the animal's eyes about bugged out of their head that, oh my gosh, there is food somewhere else. And we would walk around with them and all of a sudden they would, we'd ask for a behavior, they would do it and we would go to another location. All of a sudden, instead of me looking like a walking side bucket, I, Al, the person, was now of interest to the animal, and the animal was interested in doing the behavior correct because they wanted to know what Al was going to go do. Now, all of a sudden, after all this time, I have animals that are looking at Al for Al, not Al as a, as a walking side bucket. And what it did that was so, again, besides that life changing moment, what it did is because the side buckets where we had it hidden, we're not always close, I had to go ahead and figure out what a potential other reinforcer might be. So now it made me start thinking of other opportunities to reinforce with things that I'd learned that they liked during training sessions. So all of a sudden, I don't have to feed anything anymore. All of a sudden, I'm now looking for other types of reinforcers other than the food it was it was probably one of the most it's one of my it's one of my life changing moments and to this day i do the same thing with all my animals i found that when i started working with service dogs i started using a pouch when i and and realized that i got caught up in what we used to do and started to place food in different places and i had the same effect with the dogs but I'm noticing now when I watch a lot of the um, uh, Facebook pages, I see people that are carrying buckets of food with their animals. And I know from experience, because i have done it for so many years, that those animals really are looking at us as a walking side bucket. You put the bucket away and it's out of sight, all of a sudden is that animal gonna participate? Or is the animal gonna look at it as an end of the session? You know so by teaching that it did two things it all of a sudden the animals in my world and now i'm looking for other things to reinforce with i, I uh, 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 that story just uh, it was so impactful for me but it's been something that's been with me all my life and and since that moment and it's it it really gives me an insight into the animal on whether the animal's really interested in what i'm offering versus the animal just knowing what it's going to get and when that get is gone that they have an opportunity to choose whether they want to still be there or not. Just thought I'd share that one.
0: Yes, no, and I think it's a great point because I'm often thinking about that and, and been writing also about it. How you know this? You, you talk so much also about food, right? And how we use food and being careful and how we use food and 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 our, this good relationship to have with the animals. And as you rightly so say they want to be with you because they want to be there because you have all kinds of things you're offering. And sometimes it's food and sometimes it's a fun play interaction with a toy. And then it's a nice cuddle and, you know, that make you be able to build, you know, whole sand, um, killer whales, which is an amazing story. I think, you know, to have that feeling uh, of what the animal uh, looks like in your hands, that is a very powerful. It also says so much about how much time you have spent um, doing that, right? Just building that relationship with the animals, because it's a very valid point, right? And and I remember talking with with Jim McBain, um, Dr. Jim McBain, veterinarian at Sea World, and he always asked oh, yeah. those questions as well, right? Where he would say, "Do they want to be with you? Right? Would they Would they stay with you? And you?" you also put this forward, you know, why are the animals with you? Um, and how do you build those relationships that they want to be with you without you being that walking bucket? I, I really appreciate you sharing these insights because it's it's really fundamental to having deeper relationships with animals that go beyond um, the food uh, line. So thank you. You're welcome. And so of course, I mean you have talked a lot about you know animal training in the field and evolution and and different species and that you've worked with you know over 125 species and all trained them, which is incredible. And of course, we well, you know would love to hear more uh, really species-specific also examples on like how do you you know uh, build a relationship with a snake or with others. So maybe could you touch a little bit on the stories of more, like, like let's say, more unusual species that most people don't necessarily think about uh, with training and relationship building?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on, on the Harris Hawks that we have. And the reason why I'm going to do that is because right now, the, the, I, what I see as one of the big things in the industry is to not fly with Jesses with the Hawks or whatever bird of prey you're flying. Um, I, I don't see it as a problem because I don't really feel that they look, the animal looks at it a whole lot different. What I'm looking for is overall engagement. And my wife and I travel, we, now we live in, in in Texas and we travel to New Mexico a lot and uh, to, to fly our birds because there's a lot of access for gain for them. And the one thing that, I've been able to do like with every other animal that I've had an opportunity to work with is how do I reduce the food out of the, out of the equation? And we, 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 again, I use the same methodology I use for everybody. You know I want to establish a common language. I want to be able to focus on building relationships. And then I want to also focus on how do I get food out of the equation so I can actually see what's going on. And uh, the two Harris Oaks I have, we've had them now for, I think it'll be eight years this year, and we take them out and we will fly with these birds for six to eight hours free flying in the wild without having to use food. Because what we've found is that we people have become great, you know, uh uh, flushers of either game or bringing game or bringing them into the environment and the pursuit of game now the thing that's funny about birds of prey especially our hawks is that we see a lot of game but we don't catch a lot of game because the game's pretty smart too they understand where they're at but we can go out into the field with those guys for that long length of time i never worried about them flying away the only thing I, I do have telemetry on them, and it's only because these birds will follow uh, bunnies down into the bunny holes. And if I'm not close enough to see where they go and they're down in the bottom of that hole, I need to know where they're at. But they are so pr- participating in, in what we're doing out there. I can, I can tap on a piece of debris And that will, you know, that becomes a cue that there might be a potential possibility there might be game somewhere because at one point in my learning history with you, game came out of it. I can pull those birds from all over the place. I can lead those birds through the field and I can tell you where they're gonna fly to because of the direction that I'm walking. And it's not because I'm carrying food or because I have food. It's because of everything we just got done talking about is I have an opportunity to get you opportunities. And you know that there is those options out there. And sometimes I catch something and sometimes I don't. But I can be catching a lot of game and I can trade off of that game and still continue flying all day. I can take a break in the middle of the day, just sit the birds out. Um, you know, I don't have to put them, put them back in their travel boxes. I can have lunch with the birds sitting out. They hang out with us. When we're ready to start going in, they're going again too all feeding back to the scenario that I was talking about with the sea lions. I'm not a walking food station. I'm a, I'm a walking opportunity for something that's going to enrich their lives. So, you know, the, that, that to me is super important. And let me just touch on that snake really quick. Um, because people go, well, how do you build a relationship with a snake? Well, I've had snakes at home. And obviously, one of the things you look at is, Is um, how handleable they are, how much time do you spend, and how handleable they are. But I can also move them around without using food because I know that heat is a, a resource for them that attracts them. So I can shift them or move them from one location to the next because I have the abilities of heating a location. So I'm now taking food out of the equation, but I'm using another resource that is important to them, which is heat and I can go ahead and condition them to move from one place to the other. So, you know, and, and obviously those are just things you learn by observing what it is that they're actually doing. And then you can take it to the next step, uh, on however you want, depending on, again, you have to know the species, you have to know what they're capable of doing, and then you can make a decision on whether they're capable of In other words, I can't, even though I can have a, a, a dolphin jump out of the water, I can't teach them to fly because they're not capable of doing it. So I need to know what my limitations are because of the physical makeup and the history of what those animals are. But I can take a look at it. But everything we're talking about all leads back to the same thing. It leads back to the fact of, you know, you're looking at the welfare, you're, you're, and and everything we've talked about, everything we've listed, everything gets applied, and it all gets done that way because of of the fact that this is not reinventing the wheel. This wheel, the only reinvention is Discovering more things about whatever specific individual can have or need. And then it's up to you, the trainer, to decide the complexity of whatever you're going to do. You're not limited to that.
0: No. And you talk a lot about, you know, working together as a team with the animals, um, you know, exploring together, opportunities together, and, you know, those relationship buildings of different kinds. And but you also talked earlier about you know some of the methods that you were using that you know were not very nice uh, and you were looking for ways to do it better and to improve and and one of the things you briefly touched upon was the um, the least reinforcing scenario or there seems to be yes. a bit of a discussion and maybe you can talk about that as well with its a scenario stimulus, and it's been going back and forth, I believe. But, um, but can you talk a little bit about why and how did it develop? And so, and perhaps also what are some of the pros and the cons of it? Because it's not actually being used in all training scenarios. So for us already training and knowing this uh, concept, could you, could you dive a little deeper there?
1: Sure, sure. And, and again, this process is another one of my life-changing moments, Um, and I, and I do it with all my animals and I've been doing it for many years. In fact, uh, this morning I was laying in bed and I'm trying to think about what we did to tell the animals they did something wrong in the past. And it's been so long since I've used the word no in any training process that I have forgotten how long it's been since I've used the word no, because I use the LRS. Um, the, the LRS, and again, I, I, Myself and Steve Abel, who is at Shedd Aquarium right now, went ahead and kind of gave an update at at a a couple of conferences recently because of some new findings as we continue to evolve the LRS, although what doesn't evolve from the LRS is the actual procedure that we use for the LRS. Um, all we've done is we've we looked at the LRS as not being a, a, a DRO, but being a DRA, because we are looking at an alternative behavior. Um, uh, but let me, let me jump to uh, a story about Ramu, who was one of my greatest teachers, because he was the killer whale, the first killer whale I, I ever uh, worked with, and he was the most aggressive killer whale that I ever worked with. And yet he is the first killer whale that I ever did water work with. If you could ever imagine the way that animal was, you could actually get in the water with him. Because again, he was on a strict F one schedule, and if you if you tried to skip anything, he would let you know it. Um, and and what we tried to do is with him in specific is. As we were developing the, the, we didn't even know it was the LRS at that time. But what we were trying to do is find what is the least thing that we could reward with if he did something wrong. And some of the thoughts that we had and we experimented with was if he does a behavior wrong and we don't uh, accept it and he comes back, you know, so he doesn't get mad, but he came back. Can we give him a different size fish? uh we started with we'll give him a herring well nothing seemed to change and then we said we'll give him a smelt and nothing seemed to change and then we gave him a an eyeball and nothing seemed to change and then i remember we were in a meeting and we we're discussing kind of the next step and chuck Tompkins says uh who, who we work with over the years says let's don't give him anything and we're all looking at him like you don't give him anything and we're gonna get back to him coming out of the water at us well we can move on then right yeah, we can move on. So Ramu started to teach us the fact that if we wanted to reduce aggression, that we could in a very short span of time, and we were able to narrow it down to between two to three seconds. For a new person, we'd say three to five seconds, we could go ahead and we could then take that little pause, which is the least amount of changes. Because when we first explored the LRS. It was actually uh, uh, it was actually instead of a scenario, it was a stimulus. And what that was is we would stand postureless. We would stand, you know, in, in very rigid form. And, and if you were trying to concentrate on what you're doing, I remember one of the trainers would always chew on his whistle at the time. Well, the reality was his body was giving off so much information to the animal. That it wasn't the least amount of change; it was actually increasing change, which basically meant if I do the behavior wrong and I come back, I can get you to chew on your whistle even harder, and I can get your body to move. So we decided, okay, that's not working. But what we can do is we can, whatever position we're in—if I'm—if I'm on the—if I'm on, sitting to the side of the pool, if I'm on the ground, whatever it is—I'm not going to change that. But the other thing that was really important in this is that I needed to have a plan. What was I going to do next? So after that three seconds, and by the way, that three to five seconds of doing nothing at the time where they would normally get reinforcement is a time for the trainer to think about what they wanted to do next. Do I want to repeat that behavior? Do I want to move on? You know, what happened is as we explored it, you could do an LRS and if you gave three or four LRS's in a row, all of a sudden that got frustrating again, not only to the, the to the, uh, the trainer who was now escalating in their frustration, but to the animal. So the LRS at that point wasn't reducing frustration or either in the trainer. It's because we, the trainer at that time was sticking to the plan that I had to repeat that same behavior and I had to get it right. But the reality is, Maybe the animal didn't see me give the cue, or maybe the animal didn't understand the behavior, or maybe I didn't understand what the criteria was. Maybe it's something that I'm doing wrong. And what the LRS did is not only to give you an opportunity to create a strategy, but it gave you an opportunity to say, I'm just going to move on because I don't know. Or maybe I'm going to end the session and I'm going to go get help because I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't want to frustrate me, and I don't want to trust, frustrate the animal anymore. So that three-second pause was really an important piece because it was where you decided what that strategy was. And what it did is it reduced frustration in the trainer, and it reduced aggression in the animal. And the the other thing that I was at just a recent conference we gave, Steve and I gave the update on the LRS, and I had some brilliant uh, behavioral analysts, just brilliant people, and they said it's not a DRO you're doing, it's a DRA, and we're like, why? And it's because during that three-second pause, the trainer is thinking about what the next strategy is, and for the animal, all the animal has to do is be calm and attentive. So now I'm reinforcing it. So what am I doing? I'm giving a DRA. I'm. I, we have we have trained. A common attentive process for the animal, which also is reinforceable because it's a behavior we're looking for. And oh, by the way, if I have attentive, when I make the decision in my strategy on what I'm going to do next, I have an attentive learner. So now the learner isn't frustrated because it, their learner knows what they're supposed to do during that time, and so does the trainer. And the LRS is that simple. The problem with the lrs is the fact that everybody that uses it wants to reinvent it into something else and call it an lrs and you know i had there's some trainers out there that that say you need to after you come out of that strategy you need to ask that animal for a behavior you know they're going to be successful on well we did that but when we went back to the behavior that was the problem <laughs> we all of a sudden got aggression again. And we got aggression because it was the behavior, not the behavior that came out of it, it was the behavior that was the problem. And the thing was is if we didn't know what we were doing or the animal didn't know what they were doing, it didn't matter how many good behaviors that were gonna be successful, once you triggered it by instigating the behavior that the problem was, you had it all over again. So the, the process of the LRS, It's very simple, it's written down, but the formula, the basic formula for it gets skewed and people use it. Not only that, but for many years, we didn't update the LRS. We kind of just took it for granted. The other part of the industry would learn what they're doing and how they're doing it. And then all of a sudden, it went a wholly different direction and people were saying they were giving LRSs in papers and in presentations and stuff, and it wasn't an LRS. And that's the reason why Steve and I rewrote it, put the process out, graphed it, broke it down. So it would be very easy to understand how it works and what you do. And when I moved into the service dog industry, there were a lot of no reward markers. They weren't using always the word no. They would use the word leave it uh, or some other term, which basically turned into being no, 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 no. We introduced the LRS to the service dogs, and by gollies, within within a session, you had a calm and attentive learner, and we would train all of our clients to do the LRS, which took frustration out of a client who's never worked a dog before, and it created a calm, attentive learner While the client was trying to learn how to do what they're doing, because the dog knew more than the trainer, and we would, we also uh, started a a a program, a week-long workshop for the professional dog trainer to come to our facility and work with our dogs. And the lrs was a part of it, and we would teach it on the first day, because we knew that the trainers were coming out, majority of them would use a no reward marker, and our our dogs didn't understand what the heck that meant. So again, going back to the language. But the interesting thing was, is by the end of the week, these trainers that have never used it before were using it so effectively. And not only that, but it made learning these dogs, you know, less frustrating for them because they knew it was okay to make a mistake and they knew the dog understood what it meant and it gave me time to think or move on. And all of a sudden you had within a nanosecond of time, be able to train that. I believe there's a a number of people that feel that the the LRS is very complex. The process of the LRS is not complex. What's complex is what you're doing in that strategy and it just takes time like anything else to develop an understanding of what that does. So if if there would be any con to the LRS it's just that there's too many people out there that are are calling whatever process they're using you know an LRS and it's not the other thing is the lrs is is an extinction process because remember an extinction process is when when you're asking for behavior and there's no delivery of reinforcement and that's occurring so it's not a it's not a extinction as a sense that it's going to uh, go through an extinction burst if it ever gets to that point then using the Lrs wrong and the other point I'd like to bring up about the LRS is that The LRS is most effective when you're maintaining established behavior, and I use it very limitedly when I'm shaping behavior because what I want to do during a shaping process is I want the dog to get creative or the animal to get creative. But once they understand that behavior and I'm maintaining it, I don't want them to be shaping that behavior we've established to new criteria because I'm bringing attention to what they're doing wrong. That's the LRS in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> Excellent. That's a great nut and lost to crack. And I'm sure we could do a whole podcast and with with other people also discussing this because it's so interesting. And and I know in in my research background, you know, we've had lots of discussions on the use of the LRS and and whether or not and it's very rarely used in that setting. Um, so you know, there's so many things to talk about it that I really Um, I have to say I haven't seen the update on it um, because I haven't um, you know followed up on it for a while so it would be very interesting for me to read uh, you know what you've done and and I already look forward um, to uh, perhaps you could send it uh, to me or we can even put a link with the podcast because I know a lot of us you know as professional trainers we want to continue to learn and 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 hear about different concepts and methods that we can use and this is one of them so i really look forward to that
1: i'd be happy to send you the powerpoint on it
0: excellent there's already
1: been two papers published or that have been out years ago all we did was try to simplify we didn't change it over the last 20 years but what we have done is just brought it out and tried to make it uh more understandable maybe for somebody to be able to look at it and in its simplicity than it is to read about it and make assumptions on what you're supposed to do.
0: Yes. No, I think that's absolutely, that is great because, yeah. And also, you know, for like, for example, I'm not a native English speaker. uh, So there's lots of things like that. So seeing it, as you say, you know, spelled out and, and, and also, as you rightly say, you know, lots of people are using it in so many different ways and calling it the LMS, but that's not what. Uh, you actually developed at that time and have updated since so already looking forward to that so and of course you know there's all these different um, stories about you and animals and we've been talking uh, for quite a while and I'm really enjoying it so of course you know before we kind of you know move toward the end of the podcast of course we have to have you know good animal stories in there but also very importantly, because you have been doing this for such a long time, is to really, you know, hear about how has, you know, for example, your work working with um, killer whales and all these different species. In what way has that helped you uh, in the in the service dog work? Because you already, of course, talked about, you know, applying the LRS. What are some of the other things that you that you learned there or that you actually learned from you said you know there's so much development in the in the dog world that you are now using with your animals
1: right the basically we've covered a a great percentage of all the things that we had done in the marine mammal side of things into the dog world one of the things that i I would like to make sure that i bring up that i did bring into the server side that we did in the uh other side marine mammal side was that we created a balance of sessions and what i mean by that i don't know if you've ever heard the acronym a pleasure session yes uh it was a way for us it was a way for us to track uh play learning exercise um, um shows were for the marine mammals and socialization which was getting the dogs out were the um service dog side and then relationships and we would graph those, or I'm I'm sorry, we would graph. But we we would actually each each of those particular we we'd have uh, seven days a week. Dog's name. We would put up there every time you did an interaction. Was it a pleasure session? Or uh, what what was it? Was it a learning session? Was it an exercise? Blah blah blah. So that way, at the end of the week, we could go back and go. You know what? Um, uh, Brisby he didn't get any exercise this week. He got a lot of learnings. He didn't get very many socialization, he got a lot of relationships and a lot of learning, but he needs some play. So what it did is it allowed us an opportunity to take a look at whether or not we were balancing the, the interactions we were having. Too many times because training and shaping behavior is so sexy, because I get to do it and I get to make that progress and and you know, all of a sudden, I got this behavior at the end that we forget all the other pieces of what makes up the dog's life or the the killer whale's life or whatever it is. So, I brought over the the the, the pleasure session model so that you could take a look at it because I can't tell you how many times you you know we were doing it in the marine mammal world where you would go because of all, all the amount of shows we would do that the balance would get thrown off and you would start to see the animals changing a little bit, maybe a little bit more tired, maybe a little bit more distant. And when you would go back and you would review what they've been doing over the week, it was pretty easy to identify what piece of the pleasure session we were not doing effectively or limited to. So I've, I brought that in because it's easy again because of the sexiness of the training that you forget about some of the really important things that balances out but learning um obviously yes. you know the, the obviously building relationships um really focused a lot on VRRV, the variable ratio with reinforcement variety because it in the dog world was a lot of f1s as well or it was an f1 with a pat on the head you know so was that pat on the head really effective and then is it effective? You could you could see by the mannerism of the, the animal that the animal's pulling away while you're going and doing it. Well, even though you gave it a pat on the head and you say it's a reinforcing, I just watched your dog move its head and move its body away from you. So obviously you didn't give a good effective reinforcer. And when we started to do a variable ratio with reinforcement variety, it started to click into somebody's head that you could use other things in the environment that the the dog might like at that particular time. And then we also took and carried that over to what the um, client would have. Um, uh, Obviously, the LRS was huge uh, uh, during that process because one of the things that we had, you know, uh, that I'd seen in the past uh, and and had been done is that the client and the uh, the dog would get frustrated and the dog would try to look at the trainer the whole time instead of, paying attention to the, to the client because you know, it was doing things wrong and it was just getting frustrated. So the LRS was really valuable. The other thing that was super important was about uh, including the client in understanding the language we were speaking. And that was really important because there was a point as I was saying, the dog would always look back to the trainer to, to go, is that the cue I'm supposed to be taking? Where if you, because we were able to have all the trainers work all the dogs all the same way all we did was slide the client in and now the client knows the language that all of us have been using so the dog goes oh okay I know what you're talking about and you'd be able to go through and you'd be able to develop a rapport that client and the dog much faster and the dog was not looking back to the trainer because it already understood what the language was it didn't have to figure out what it was. You know, to make sure that the yes. the trainers were engaged, though, too, even though we we're all speaking the same language, when we we're maintaining behavior, we would have each of the trainers work different dogs on. Let's just say I worked a tugging the door open on X dog and you, Sabrina, trained X dog to do a, a, a retrieval. Well, you got a chance to develop your skill the dog got a chance to see how you train. And, and so did I, but yet when it came to all the other things that the dog already knew and the behavior was completed into fluency and train, we all were doing the same thing. So I brought that in to the, um, from working in the, the other side of the planet to, to working in the dog world. And the other thing was finding other reinforcers because the dog world traditionally has been one of an F1 schedule or a pat on the head. So it was about seeking other ways of giving tackle through your relationship sessions. It was about starting your session out on whether the dog is engaged or not. Well, in fact, we we did a, uh, for a few years, we were having uh, teenage, um, they're prisoners, they were, they were kids in a, in, in, in a prison. And we were taking and we were teaching them how to work with our dogs. And our dogs at the time, all the dogs we were getting were from shelter. So no history, uh, a lot of different behavior and stuff like that. And we we taught all the kids the same methodology that I'm talking about right now. And what it did is it gave them another way of looking at how to condition and work with the dogs. But those dogs, a number of those dogs came back to our program. And immediately slid in because these kids that we were teaching were doing the same thing and establishing the same language. So, really important points, you know, approximating behavior. Everything else is pretty much similar to that, just understanding and a little bit differently. But again, I think you can see the 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 general theme of this podcast has just really been some essential pieces. But without those essential pieces, you don't establish a long time learner you establish a follower. And the key is these animals of all species, just like us, like when we do something or know something and don't have to depend or follow us for what it is we're doing because it reduces frustration in the learning. And it, it increases frustration in relationships. So all these things that we've been talking about are all pretty much falling into the same world some of them I learned while we were developing them and had become key moments in my life. And those are the things that I found that have been most successful. And we can all do things a little bit different in how we approach it, but those all become the essentials. And those were the things that uh, uh, I brought into the work.
0: It's amazing. I love also how, like, at the start you say, well, pretty much covered everything. And then you pull out, you know, like just briefly before the podcast, we talked about all these filing cabinets and all those nuggets. And then you pull out another, you know, 15 minutes of, of, you know, amazing information and sharing. It's just wonderful. Excellent. I love that. Um, Thank you. Yes, no, that's great. Um, To wrap up, of course, we want to hear about, you know, the animals that have played roles and are still playing roles in your life. And, you know, in, in, um, in Barbara Heidenreff's podcast, I heard this beautiful comment on, you know, brothers hawks and your hawks and being peas and carrots. And, um, and, and you know, um, you, you talk about relationships and, and connecting with animals. And can you talk about, you know, that in more depth and, and perhaps also who was or is your best animal friend because you, you have quite a few friends also, animal friends at home.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I, I would love to because and again going back to the beginning, shows doing performing shows with animals was 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 so uh critical to my learning because of learning my physical mechanics, you know, how to walk, how to deliver, how to, you know, how to you know do all the things that you need to, to understand how to shape behavior and maintain behavior. But what shows did for me in working together is, you would work multiple animals at the same time. And you would have to be able to have an animal sit and be patient sitting next to you while you're working with one, and then immediate move to the next one. But the, uh, as an example, <laughs> We, we, had, we did a show, Spooky Kooky Castle. I think Dave Flores started that years ago. Greatest show. One, one awesome show. But we did a dinner sequence. And we trained the animals uh, at this particular time as a Seymour or a Clyde. And, and each of them would have a behavior that would be done correctly by the Seymour and incorrectly by the Clyde. Trained by the trainers. So we knew what we were going to have. And we would do a dinner sequence, where we would have a a a, a large podium like in front of us, two sea lions on uh, on my right and on my or one on my right, one on my left. One was a Clyde, one was a Seymour. And the the really cool thing about it was that we all three became one. It was like we were working with uh, good friends, because my gesture of turning my back to one, was a cue for that particular animal to do a behavior. But at the same time, it was another cue for the other animal to do a behavior. So we had this really wonderful scene where you would take food, you'd be feeding fish to each one of them. You get one and, and you know, and then you go over to the next one. And even though peripherally, using a peripheral vision you could see what was going on, to the audience, it it would look like the animal was thinking anthropomorphically. So I'd place one fish down and i go to place the fish on another one. And when I turn around, the fish on my, the, the, the sea lion on my left had, had eaten it and went right back to a face front like nothing ever happened. And i look where the fish was. Well, at the same time, the other animals trained not to touch the food. So I had one when my back was turned to grab the food, one when I moved my body the other way to leave the food. And we would go back and forth with that. And then what we did is we integrated uh, a head turn. So when I would turn very quickly to try to catch the other animal, the animal would do a turn and stick its nose in the air and turn its back to me. So the, the timing was, in, it was incredible. The back and forth was incredible. The fact we were talking, working two animals at the same time with the same purpose in mind was just euphoric for me. Uh, and that became one of the things that um, that became my ultimate high. When I'm training, the connection between myself and the animals. My goal is to have that euphoric feeling that you know at that particular moment we are both on the same wavelength. We are thinking the exact same thing at the exact same time. And, and, I, and I have an example of that, that I thought was, that was really cool. And this was, I had a red tail hawk many years ago and I had him for maybe nine or 10 years. I always like to have my animals a little bit longer because there's always new things to learn about, about, about what they're like. That's just owl. Um, And we were hunting one time in an area we called the jungle. There's a lot of grapevines and there's always bunnies running around and the grapevines are really thick and they're really hard for the human to chase them out for the bird. And we were in this really interesting moment where we were in this large area. It was probably 100 by 100, uh, if not larger than that, of grapevine. And we had a bunny underneath it. We knew it was there. You could see it moving around. Uh, but I have my red tail who was named Raider at the time. He was up on a, on a high perch. I was down below and, and he and I had worked together for a long time. So we knew a lot of our mannerisms and we were in the middle of flushing this bunny from one location to the next. Well, while I'm moving from one direction, Raider is now flying to another tree to put him in advantage. If I flush it that direction. And when the bunny makes a move to go to another direction, I'm moving and Raider moves to another location. And we went back and forth, where there was such this euphoric feeling of the fact that this hawk, and by the way, is a wild bird. I I trapped it from the wild, was on the exact same wavelength, and we were on the same page about how we were moving this whole situation around. My goal, every time that I'm working with an with multiple animals or one animal is about getting to that euphoric feeling where at those moments in time even though we're not able to speak to each other like you and i are doing right now we have reached that and every animal that i've encountered i'm always looking for those moments and they don't happen all the time and i'm always searching for those and uh I'm flying my two hair socks right now, they're eight years old, and when my wife and I are out and we're flying with our two birds together, we have many of those euphoric moments because of how focused we all four are. So instead of us just being, you know, two birds and two humans, it's really a group of mixed species that are all working together towards a common goal, and we're all communicating through our ways of communication at those moments. Um, One, one other quick story. I know I'm, I'm rambling on here with you, but years ago,
0: we like the rambling.
1: uh, Okay. Uh, uh, Many years ago, uh, SeaWorld used to have a high dive during the ski show and ABC sports, which was a big deal at the time, came out to videotape it. The, or, or program it from SeaWorld in Orlando. They had asked if we had anything that we might want to do as a a buffer uh, between commercials and stuff like that. And they asked me if, uh, if I could do something. And I went ahead and decided I was going to have, I was going to play Frisbee with two sea lions. So each of the sea lions individually. And again, this is something I think it's important to note too, is that when I work group behavior, <clears throat> excuse me, every animal individually knows what I want, just the animal and myself. And once both animals independently can understand what I want, that's when I start to include two. And I do the same thing with our hawks, the same thing happened with our hawks. And we had a third hawk, we did the same thing. So anyways, we, we knew that they could throw a frisbee but I, I needed to train them to throw a frisbee independently back to me so i could and this was murray and snafu were the two sea lions and i could throw a frisbee to murray and murray would throw the, the the frisbee back and then i could individually throw a frisbee to snafu and snafu would come back and murray didn't have a problem running to fetch it snafu tended to be more stationary So for the shoot, I was going to throw a Frisbee uh, to Snafu. Snafu was going to catch it and then throw the Frisbee to Murray. Because remember, I needed to have somebody, you know, with, with Snafu, I needed to make sure that I threw it as accurately as I could because he didn't move a lot. But when Snafu threw it, it wasn't always super accurate. But Murray, because he was willing to go after it, would go catch it. But Murray was accurate enough to throw it back to me. So we were able to train, you know, I'd throw it to Snafu, Snafu would throw it to Murray, Murray would throw it to me, and we would just do a roundabout with this team, group, together, all being at the same moment. And the cool thing was is to watch the, the sea lions knowing it was their turn and how much concentration they had about what they were going to do at that particular moment. It wasn't like you throw a Frisbee and they just kind of haphazardly threw it. They knew where it was supposed to go and they knew what they were supposed to do. So another opportunity to work multiple animals at the same time, being on the same page, being in the same moment, but having a human involved with a, another species of animal and all being on the same page at the same time.
0: Yes. Coming together again in, in synchrony, as you've been talking about. Yeah, very, very nice. And 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 I was wondering, you know, as we come to the end of the podcast, you've you've talked a lot about all kinds of experiences and methods. You know, what is the one thing or the few things that every tra- animal trainer should know and do? You know, what what is that? What is that to you? If if you would. Answer that, please.
1: Um, that, that, that an effective animal training program is the basics to successful animal welfare.
0: Yeah, to understand that you know learning happens all the time in all kinds of ways, that how animal training can aid in all these different goals that we have uh, for animals and wanting to care for them.
1: Absolutely absolutely it is it is to me it is the building block it's the building block for the animal's future learning it's creating a learner an active learner and not a follower and you know when you think about animals and the one thing you're always hearing an activist talking about is they're bored in their environment but if you teach a learner and they become obsessed with learning, as you are with your learning, as I am with my learning, it's not anything different for the animals. To me, after you do a successful training session, the one thing I noticed, and you can tell it's successful, the animal will go to sleep or relax or do whatever it is. Because the mental health of our animals as important as our physical health of our animals, we can combine both those to create a really great welfare um, uh, effect for our animals.
0: Yes, and and that takes me to my my last question, whether, you know, what what you've talked about, learning from experience and how we can improve and, and what do we actually know and where does it come from? So what are some of your wishes and ideas for the future of animal care and training?
1: interesting question uh sabrina i i've I've been pondering that a lot i have a a couple of them that i will talk about i I think because of the question you asked me too i probably will ponder that even more um, because i think it's important but i think if i could just take it off the top one of it would be i think that we need to take past information and look at how we can apply it to the future i see a lot of programs that are kind of stuck in um, Groundhog Day, doing the same thing. And maybe advance a little bit, but, but at the same time, I think that when I'm sitting here talking about doing shows, and I, and I really feel bad that, that because everybody wants to have stagnant or just a regular general presentation, that they don't realize that the complexity of behavior that we can teach is so incredibly stimulating to these animals. And I've seen it time and time again, and it goes back to what I was saying about an, after a session, having an animal just relax, to me is super valuable. And, and also to have, be, and, and all that information, all the stuff we've been covering today is all from past. It's not new. It's from the past. So I think we need to look at information from the past and apply it for the way we look at the future. Um, I think we need to continue to mix the science with the application. And one of the things that I've been seeing more and more, I go to a a conference every year with the University of North Texas that the uh, behavioral analysis group puts on. And the thing that I always talk to the students that are there about is the fact that the future trainer to me, the future training practitioner is also a behavior analyst. For so many years, we've had just the regular practitioner or we've had the psychologist, that blending of both. We, it, it, I've always tried to blend it as much as I possibly could because we started to understand and have understood now the importance of blending science, but you have to have the practitioner's eye to be able to apply it. It's not a laboratory, it's fluid. You have to understand how to, you know, respond and react on your feet. I see the future trainer, as being a behavioral analyst that is just as skilled as a training practitioner or vice versa. And um, I, I think that we, the other f- wish is that we never lose focus on the importance of a, an effective training program for the success of an animal welfare program.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Al, for sharing so much, you know, insights and experiences. And and I, I really appreciate that you took so much time to share with us all these different aspects that in a way, you know, all pertain to the same thing, but just in different nuances and the details and how, you know, how do we learn from the past? How do we put science into practice? How do we use the practice skills of people and perhaps ask scientific questions about that and this continuous learning and growing in our field and and it's so inspiring to hear somebody who has been in this field for so long and with you know you have such an open mind an open way of being and, and that is really really amazing and i think many uh, can learn from that. this this the attitude that you transmit of being a lifelong learner um, is, is really amazing.
1: Sabrina, thank you. And I just wanted to close uh, very quickly with the fact that uh, I appreciate, first of all, that you've allowed me to open up some of those old uh, dusted file cabinets with some of the old stories and some of the things that, that I needed to remember. I appreciate that. And the other thing uh, I have a, uh, a behavioral analyst. She's a PhD. She's she's a in, in, in the neurological side of things, and she wants to be a falconer. And we've done a presentation together. And she's gone out flying birds with me. And she always says, "I, I really like learning from a master." And I, I'm I, and being kind of humble. I'm like I just like doing this. And she goes, "Al, that's the reason why you're a master. Because a master always wants to learn. Is never satisfied. It's not somebody who is." you know, discomplacent with what their knowledge is, but never seeks to learn more. And I thought that was a really valuable thing that she said. And I think that's important is is that I will never stop learning. But what I have learned is there's some skills that I have mastered that allow me to continue to um, explore um, the world of working with uh, animals and getting into their heads. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you. I really would like to thank you again for, you know, being here on this podcast. We'll make sure to, of course, uh, put in some very nice photos, perhaps something to some videos of your work. Uh, and of course of your Hawks that you're flying with and, and uh, papers perhaps, you know, that people could explore, of course, More Park College where uh, it all began. And uh, yeah, there's just, I'm really delighted. And I thank you so much for your time. Uh, for being on this podcast with us. Thank you. Already the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Find us on your favorite platform and leave your comments and suggestions or go to the Animal Concepts website to send us your questions and feedback. We are so happy to answer them and address them in future podcasts. Animal Concepts is dedicated to helping you care for animals and yourself. Are you interested in quality animal care and welfare content, in actions and resources for you to be well while caring for animals? Then check out Pause, the practical animal welfare science platform, which has webinars, science into practice case studies, private Facebook live sessions, and a lot of resources for you and the animals you care for. You can share your experiences and connect to animal care professionals and scientists from around the world. In the meantime, take care of you and the animals and keep buzzing.